Good morning to all our viewers that are joining us on this live stream. We are excited to be with you all. Though again, we wish we were in person seeing each other face to face. Uh, this is still a blessing from the Lord to be able to share God's word with you and for you to be able to interact with us. And we are officially at Palm Sunday and we are kicking off Holy Week, uh, not just as the local church, but the church at large. And this week we will be recognizing a historical event and we know what that historical event is. But what's unique about this Sunday and this week that will follow is that we are recognizing a historical event during a historical time. As you are well aware, we are living in uh, unprecedented days. And there are many reasons for why we are living in, in a moment of history like we've never known before. But here's one of them. That for the first time in American history, Christians will not be able to celebrate Easter or Holy Week in a church building, at least for the most part. That's never happened before. For the first time in America and different parts of the world, people will be in their own homes, in their own living rooms, worshiping, celebrating, and meditating upon the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, apart from the freedom and the joy of being together in one place to do so. It's amazing to think about, isn't it? I was meditating upon that truth and thinking about all the plans that churches were making for this time of the year. All the choirs, all the plays, all the events, the outreaches even, all these different details that are thought ahead of time, only to find ourselves in our own rooms watching a live stream and different places People are meeting in different ways, but not the way we usually do. And think about all the things that were interrupted. Think about the disruption of this virus and what it did in bringing all those things to a total halt. And I thought to myself, when thinking about that truth, about a scripture that's been occurring in my heart, and maybe it came to yours as well throughout these past few days, it's found in James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. See what James says, and maybe these verses will grip us in a way like they never have with our experience. It says here in verse 13 of James chapter 4, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You will grip us in a way like they never have with our experience says here in verse 13 of James chapter 4, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We've probably read over that verse so many times, skipped over it. But like I said, maybe it's going to hook us now and gain our attention in a new way. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Is, is the Holy Spirit against believers making plans ahead of time, calculating how they should execute certain things in the future? 
Are we not encouraged to think about how we should live and how we should make investments and how we should uh, even prepare for a time ahead, even if it's a year from now? Absolutely. We are encouraged to do so. We are, we are not just told to think about the future. We are told as believers in wisdom to plan for the future. So if that's the case, then what's this whole text about for James to say, in, in essence, later on, that you are arrogant for thinking this way? Your boasting is evil, he says in verse 16. Why, why is that? This seems so innocent. This seems like something that everybody does if they care about their lives. It's not that the Holy Spirit is speaking against or condemning a person who plans or a person who dreams or a person who desires to accomplish something beyond the present. I believe there are three things in these verses that we should be aware of and we should be humbled by. Firstly, I think we can recognize that the Holy Spirit is not speaking against a mindset that plans, but a mindset that is confident that their future is set and that they are the determiner of the things to come in their own lives. That they can shoot off anything without any intervention, without any disruption, that they are in control. And there's almost this idea of invincibility, that nothing can overpower them, nothing can steer them away, that if they have it set, it will come to pass. It will be certain. And what does James say? He says in verse 14, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time. I like how the ESV translates it. You think about all the places in the Bible that tells us who we are, our identity. We're children of God. We're co-heirs with Christ. We're ambassadors of Christ. But I've never heard in my life being told, or even in my own life, do I really remind myself of how James identifies every person, believers included. You are a mist. That your expiration is very soon after you come into existence. One day it's there, one day it's not. It's but a moment, so fragile. And this is important to understand in light of the mindset that, that James wants to frame by the Holy Spirit in the minds of Christians. That you and I should often think about how fragile we are. Because when we think about that, and when we realize that we are not so invincible as we might think, then we will plan and make our investments wisely. Was it not Moses who said in Psalms 90, verse 12, Teach us to number our days. For what purpose? That we may gain a heart of wisdom. There is a wisdom that is inherited when you and I know how to calculate the brevity of our lives. Now, we don't know when we will leave this earth, but we know that it's possible that we can leave this earth unannounced. And this is not to encourage a way of living that makes little of life. That's the wrong way. But this is encouraging for us to make the most of our short lives. And so the first thing we have to understand is that we have to get rid of this idea in light of the fact that you and I are sitting in our, in our homes on Palm Sunday that whatever we plan for will certainly come to pass because that's just how life is and it's my world and I'm living in it and I am the determiner of events to come. That's not so. You and I are but a mist. But I think there's another point and it's the, the, 
the main point here that James is making. It's not just a mindset of invincibility. It's a mindset of independence. He says here in verse 15, Instead, instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Do you see what he's trying to encourage then? See, even believers are tempted to live in such a way where they plan and navigate and fantasize and dream and discuss about their future, about their investments, about their goals in life, apart from acknowledging God's will, seeking God's will, and surrendering to God's will. That's the great danger that James is warning about here. In fact, look at verse 13, because James in verse 13 is quoting businessmen lingo. He's using terms that businessmen would use. Come, now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. This is how people who, who think about investments and deals and building think and discuss. But notice in this little quote, nothing of God is mentioned. Nothing of God is mentioned. And we'll unpack that more. It's not to say that every single sentence needs to have God included in it. And it's not to say that in order for us to be in the will of God in this context is to take every single thing that we say to somebody and say, Inshallah, or if God wills, hopefully if God allows it. That's not what James is incurring, just this verbal acknowledgement that God is going to determine it. When he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, he's looking for, God is looking for a heart posture that truly and continually is able to say, no matter what you plan or desire in life, God, I'm going to seek your will in this, and I'm going to surrender to your choice of whether this will come to pass or not. That is what the Holy Spirit is after. And this is what you and I need to understand. See, it's amazing how, again, believers are tempted to think apart from God. And it's a dangerous way of thinking. Do you know why? Because you and I cannot expect God to bless something unless it is first surrendered to Him. We cannot know things to be blessed by God until they are first surrendered to God. You know, I'm a little shocked about America these days. Because America wants to hold on to abortion in one hand. They want to hold on to the promotion of homosexuality. They want to hold on to copious ways of blaspheming the name of God, all in one hand. And with another hand, they want to reach to heaven and ask God for healing and for restoration. You can't have both. Repentance precedes restoration. That is true on a personal level, and that is true on a national level. And if this whole thing does come to pass and that life will go back to normal after a few weeks or months without any repentance, without revival, know this. It is purely because of the sheer mercy of God and that alone. Brothers and sisters, what we have to understand, if we've got a sermon illustration for a lifetime, it is this. That we must understand that we are not invincible, that our plans are not indestructible. And that we must keep God in mind. 
Because here, here's the beauty. If you and I surrender every aspect, your education, your finances, your future marriage, your current marriage, your children, all these different things that we want to be successful and effective, if we know how to surrender it to God, then we can be at peace when things don't seem to go the way we planned it to go. Why? Because I already did my part and I surrendered it to the Lord. And if things are taken or given, blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because I gave it to Him in the first place. It belongs to Him. You know, you have a lot of Christians that quote Psalms 14.1. They quote Psalms 14.1 and you know what they say? You know what that verse says? It says, the fool in his heart says, there is no God. The fool in his heart says, there is no God. And that's often a, a, a verse that's quoted to condemn the, the atheist. But I have another perspective on that to offer. An atheist is somebody who doesn't believe God exists and lives as though God doesn't exist, right? But what about the people who profess to believe that there is a God but live as though God didn't exist? There is a category for such a person. It's not atheist. It's practical atheism. An atheist again says there is no God and their life proves it. A practical atheist says, yeah, there's a God but lives as though he didn't exist. And I can tell you there are many practical atheists in the church. Maybe you're watching and you're a practical atheist. Sure, you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is real, but your life shows nothing of it. Your life shows nothing of the Lordship, of His rule over your life. James says that if you are going to live, you're going to acknowledge God in all the affairs of your life. He says here, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills. Look at the Apostle Paul as an example. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And look at verse 19. Paul says, But I will come to you soon, to the Corinthians. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. And then you go to the end of the book of 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 7 of chapter 16. What does he say? For I do not want to see you now, just in passing. I hope to send some, spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. If the Lord permits. See, You see this man who understood in the context of his ministry and his personal relationships, that even his plans to visit someone is determined by God. Is determined by God. And this is something that we have to really, really understand because, again, it's not just a verbal acknowledgement. It is something that is of a heart posture before the Lord, recognizing Him as, again, sovereign over our existence. And James has some strong words about somebody that would not live this way, even a professing Christian that falls into the temptation of the Lord not being the determiner, but being the assistant. See, many people treat Jesus like a butler. Uh, when things go wrong, they ring the bell and they want Him to come. And just like America now, they don't want to change their ways. They just want Jesus to clean up the mess. It's not going to happen. He's not somebody that's just going to come and, and do what we want without first us complying to His will. But look what he says in verse 16 back in James chapter 5. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. These are strong words. All such boasting is evil. What is he trying to say? That if I plan and I 
want something to happen in the future that it's wrong. No, that if you choose to live your life thinking that you are invincible and your plans cannot be disrupted and thinking that you can do so apart from God's will being implemented through you as his vessel, it's arrogant and it's evil. So it's a simple call for us to realize, even in this time, that our life is a mist. And we need Him to determine how we can make the most of it. In fact, let's go to Luke chapter 12. And see something of Jesus in His own words. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. And he, being Jesus, told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Verse 17. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now I want you to read verse 17 and verse 18 very carefully and see two common words that keep surfacing. They're very small words, but they are very important. Look carefully in your Bibles and see the words that reoccur over and over again. Did you notice? The man that Jesus is describing on more than one occasion is continually repeating the words, I and my. I will do this. I will tear down. I will store. I will say, my soul, my barns, my grain, my goods. I and my, that is what is describing this man. Notice that in his plans, God, just like in James 4.13, is not mentioned at all. Everything about his existence is centered around him. And he says to his soul, so he does realize he has a soul and he does have a plan for his future soul. And the plan for the future of his soul has nothing to do with God, has nothing to do with eternal things, has nothing to do with spiritual things. Everything about his soul is what? Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And again, we would say, amen. This is the way that the world is. This is the way that non-believers think. No, James is speaking to Christians and he's saying, Christians are tempted to think about their lives just like this. It's all about I and it's all about my. You know, if this whole coronavirus thing did anything for America, surely it humbled her. Look at all the businesses, look at all the weddings, look at all the plans, look at all the ministries even that have shut down because of something that we can't even see with our own eyes. Something that it can only be perceived by a microscope has literally shut every single one of us in our doors. We should be humbled. The church should be humbled. And he says again to his soul, eat, drink, be merry. What a contrast to the psalmist in Psalm 63 when he spoke about his own soul. 
And he says there in that chapter, verse 5, My soul shall be satisfied as with, not with. It would have been a big difference. He says, My soul shall be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And then he goes on to say, And my mouth will sing of you with joyful lips. He said, My soul shall be satisfied as with, not with, rich food. In fact, can we be satisfied with those things? Sure. But our existence doesn't make up for it. And what a contrast to this man who's concerned about his soul being satisfied with riches and with plenty and with years without work because he has an investment where he can be carried through in his older days without labor. The psalmist says, my soul will know something of God. My soul will know something about spiritual blessings. It will be more it will be so filled with the goodness of God that my lips can't contain it. I'm going to sing as a result of it. So James is speaking about a certain danger. And the danger is that you and I can think in such a way where we fail to understand that life must be surrendered to Him in every aspect. And it is possible for even professing believers to make no investment internally or no investment externally for there to be passions and purposes in our lives dedicated to the Lord, but to everything else in this life. Again, it goes back to that practical atheist understanding. I acknowledge God is real, but I live as though He isn't. And we read in Psalms 14.1 that the fool says in his heart there is no God. Well, what about the person who says there is a God, but lives as though he isn't real? Well, perhaps we get an understanding, though we don't know if this man acknowledged God in his life or not. But look at verse 20. Let's see what God says about that. In Luke chapter 12. But God said to him, fool. Wow. Now, hold on. God said to him, fool. How many people would look at this man on the natural and say, smart? <laughs> You're thinking ahead, man. Look at the investments you make. Look at your mindset. Look at you. Making sure that you don't have to work another day in your life. You're smart. Ah, God says you're a fool. Why? This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared. Wow. Listen to this. The very night that this man planned for his future and was going to make a big shift in his business and in his personal life, the very night he planned it was the very night that his soul would go into eternity. The very night. He says, this night, your soul. The very night that he thought to himself, what am I going to do with all my barns? And I'm going to take this and I'm going to bring it here and, and I'm going to build that. And, and oh, I'm going, to, I'm, make, I'm going to make sure that I build a house there. And I'm going to be, oh, I'm going to stay there for at least a few months. And I'm going to, and he goes, this very night, the very night that you planned all these things, you're going to go to sleep and your eyes are going to wake up and you're going to be in another realm. And none of these things that you've planned for are going to come with you. That's what he says, right? He says, and the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? Whose will they be? Is it possible to be a Christian and be successful financially? Absolutely. Is it possible to be a, not just a Christian, but a fiery believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and no success in business and no success in real estate or whatever you want to call it? Absolutely. The fool is not the person who is successful or has a mind that is able 
to navigate through this life with great fruit in terms of the natural. That's not the fool. The fool is, in verse 21, so, it, so is the one, so is what? So is the one who is a fool, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's the fool. The fool is not the successful person. The fool is not the person who's not able to do things in this life where like Joseph and different persons in the scripture show great, great, great minds and great success. That's not the fool. The fool is the person who makes their whole life about that. The fool is the person who makes no investment concerning spiritual things, that their minds are not set on things above and are not rich towards God. See, you can be rich in this world and not rich towards God. You can be rich in this life and be poor in eternity. You can be apparently wise in this world, but a fool in the next world. How many young people in, in their late teens, in their early 20s, think like this man and have no God, no God, no things concerning the kingdom, no things concerning the gospel, no things concerning ministry for their future? All you have to do is ask yourself and look inside and see. What Jesus is saying here is what James is echoing. And it's very important for us to understand because we are hearing it day in and day out about the, the life that we are living and how it, it can be taken from us or at least changed dramatically in a moment. One last thing that James says, if we go back to James. What does he say? He says, beware of a mindset of invincibility, beware of a mindset of independence, and lastly, beware of a mindset that plans in this life without thinking that Jesus can return any moment. You might be thinking, where is that? Well, it's not found between verse 13 and verse 16. It's found in the next chapter, James chapter 5. But that's not an accident. The fact that James is speaking about what is your life and how even Christians can be tempted to live in a certain way and plan in a certain way. In James chapter 5, verse 8, he says, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So we have to make this connection because it's a flow of thought. This is not an accident, the fact that the second coming is being taught right after being reminded of a way of thinking in this life. And the connection is this, that as you and I look ahead, and as things by God's grace will be reversed concerning this virus and we will know our day-to-day -day life again, may we also keep in mind that He can still return. He can still return and everything will be changed. And, and what a way to, to plan with that in mind. Again, it's not to, to, to live in such a manner that we don't do things in this world or we don't experience things in this world, but it's to always keep in mind that the investments that we make, that what we put our efforts into, we would keep in mind that Jesus Christ will hold us accountable to it and that they must be done for His glory. They must be done with Him in mind. So when you see what James is trying to say, we should feel it today more than ever. We should look at this and, and this should be the banner of 2020. What is your life? For you are a mist. Your plans are a mist. Your finances are a mist. Your health is a mist. Your church building is a mist. And I know it's Palm Sunday, so perhaps you're sitting on the other end of this camera thinking, 
I appreciate this, but can we talk about Jesus? Absolutely, we can talk about Jesus. Because Jesus is our ultimate example. See, Jesus is fully God. And 2,000 years ago, he became fully man. Now, if Jesus became fully man, we understand that when he says, follow me, you know what he's trying to say? He's saying, imitate me. Now, it's one thing to say, follow me, and contain a power and ability that is outside of our ability, right? But Jesus became a man, and by becoming a man and saying, follow me, it means that it is possible for us to imitate him because we are men and we are women. He took on flesh and blood, and he was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted. So for Christ to say, follow me, he's asking of us, to literally imitate him. Follow me doesn't mean make sure that you wake up and come to church in the morning. That doesn't, that's not what follow me means. It means look at the way I perceive and the way I handle life and imitate it. Well, he's God. Well, he became fully man. Where's the excuse now? He was tempted in every way. I say that because I want us to see how Jesus lived his life. So you go to John chapter 9. Because we're recognizing Jesus coming to the world this week, aren't we not? Absolutely. So we come to John chapter 9. And look what Jesus says in verse 4. Oh, again, if there's a verse that should grip us in a fresh way concerning these recent events, let it be this one as well. Jesus said to his own disciples, and I like how the ESV says it. Some translations say, I must, but the ESV and the NASB says, we must. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day night is coming when no one can work what is he trying to say Jesus is about to perform a miracle Jesus is about to provide healing because he was able to do so on demand because he was fully God and the principle is still the same though he's saying I or we must work the works of him, God, who sent me while it is day. What does that mean? It means while there's still opportunity, while there's still light, while there's still a chance, while there, the door is open, we must work the works of him. And that is true for you and I, that there is a work to be done while it is day. Why? Because night is coming. Now, what does that mean? It means that there is a time coming where the curtain will be closed and the show will be over. And the opportunity to do the works of Him will no longer be available to us. It will be all done. Think about just what we experienced in these past few weeks. We're getting a taste of that. How in one moment, it was day. And we could do the works of Him freely and with resources and with the ability to reach others. But to some degree, that opportunity has been closed for a season. And we can't do the works of Him as much as we would want to. Even if we wanted to, we can't. We have so many limitations set. And looking at this verse, I go, Lord, what a sermon illustration that you have given us. We're seeing that right now. And one day, there will be a finality where there will be a complete closing and we will not be able to do the works of Him. Think about all the missionaries that can't travel to their usual destinations at this point. Think about just even on a smaller scale, how you and I cannot... Go to a church building and see people that usually come to church for Easter hear the gospel. 
There is a limitation set now. And Jesus is saying, listen, pay close attention. Unexpectedly, night can come and you and I can't do the works of him who sent us. So let's get busy with serving him. And how, how did Jesus get busy? Or how did Jesus want to encourage us to also do the works of him? It's found in the next verse. In John 9, 5, he says, what? As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. As long as I am in the world, as long as it is day, his life on earth was day. As long as I am in the world, I'm going to make sure that I will be the light of the world. And Jesus is the light of the world. He's the one that when he steps onto the scene, and he did 2,000 years ago, he shines in such a way where he exposes men's darkness. Scripture tells us early on in John that men did not want to believe because their works were exposed. How were they exposed? Because Jesus, Jesus in the revelation of who he is, when you placed your life before him, you see your darkness and you see your sin and you see your imperfection and you realize that you need cleansing. But people who don't want cleansing like to stay in the dark because they can't see it and it blends in with their environment and blends in with their philosophy of life and so it's comfortable. When Jesus steps on the scene as the light, the first thing that will be exposed is your sin and mine. But not just that. We look to Him as the light and we realize that we see things more clearly. In fact, we see things and when we see things, we see how we can navigate through this life in wisdom, yes, but we also see the way to the Father. We see the path to God Himself, and that is through His Son. And then we embrace Him as the light of the world, and we walk with Him as our source of light. So you might be watching this. You might be an Easter Christian. You show up to church just for Easter, and you barely pay attention while you're sitting there. But Jesus is the light of the world. And he wants you to understand that you're in darkness and that you need him for clarity, for truth, for understanding in this life and for the life to come. But I want to turn this verse and apply it to Christians. It's not blasphemy to do that. Why? Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, what? You are the light of the world. So how can Jesus be the light of the world and Christians be the light of the world? Well. Remember, he's saying, as long as I'm in the world, I'll be the light. But Jesus is no longer in this world. His Holy Spirit is. But you and I are in this world. And because you and I are in this world, we carry his truth and we carry his spirit. Therefore, we are the lampstand and he is the light that shines through us. We do not produce our own light. We don't produce our own truth. We don't produce our own revelation of who God is or how we should live. No, it's Christ through us. And that's why he can say, I am the light, but I'm the light through you as you are the light. But look at this verse carefully. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, as you're sitting there, can you say the same thing about your life? Can you say confidently right now as you're watching, can you say, as long as I am in the world, I will be a light for this world. In fact, Let's make this an application point. Take this verse and fill in the blank. Right now, honestly, as you're sitting there, as you're sitting, wherever you're sitting, fill in the blank as I'm about to say this phrase. As long as I am in the world, fill in the blank. What, what comes to mind? 
Let me repeat it. Say this over your life. As long as I am in the world, fill in the blank. How do you finish that sentence as a banner for your existence? For some, it's like the rich man in Jesus' parable. As long as I am in the world, I will relax, eat, drink, and be merry. For some, as long as I am in the world, I will be as successful financially as possible. For others, as long as I am in the world, I will make sure that I can get as well known and be praised by as many people as I can. For others, as long as I am in the world, I will travel the world and experience as much as I can. But Jesus said, as our example, as long as I am in the world, I will be a light in this world. Can you say that about your life? What is your life? It's a mist. But you know that mist can be a light as well. And it can offer some kind of a hope and it can point somebody to Jesus even if it's brief and even if it's short. But you have to choose to make this the statement of your days ahead. A declaration of your existence in this world. Lord, Help me be a light, your light. And let it be my food to do your will. And let it be my joy to represent you in this world, however you want me to represent you. And for some, you businessmen, God's going to shine through your business and your success. Because you will prove to the world that life's not about how much you have in the bank. And God will use your resources to touch this world. For others, you have amazing gifts. And instead of your gifts being used to get a platform for, for praise and for acknowledgement, for fame, you're going to use it to point to Jesus Christ. For others, it's a, a heart that loves people. And that will show through your job as you're a teacher or a nurse or as you're a stay-at-home mom, you will raise up kids and be a light to them in your own home. As long as I am in the world, while it is still day, I'll choose to be a light. And I look to Jesus in so many portions of Scripture. And thinking as it is Palm Sunday, we recognize that He enter triumphantly into Jerusalem. You know, we recognize that as a time of joy. If we were in church right now, we would probably have a play. We would have, you know, these branches waved around. We would recognize that He is the King that has come. He was the one that was prophesied about. But there's a part in that story that is rarely spoken about concerning His entry into Jerusalem. And I would encourage you to turn there to see it in Luke 19. Let's read this. This is after Jesus steps on the scene, on the cult. And you had a celebration, right? You had people saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It was amazing to hear this sound, especially as Jerusalem was packed by travelers all across because it was the Passover and people were preparing for it. And here are people looking for their spotless lamb to sacrifice in the temple. And God the Father has his son enter into Jerusalem and say, this is the spotless lamb. This is the true Passover lamb. 
and you had people recognizing it. And the Pharisees in verse 39 says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, the ones that are following you and saying, Blessed is the, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Rebuke them, silence them. And Jesus said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And yes, disciples, followers of Jesus should recognize this day as a celebration. We should be the ones who sing joyfully, peace in heaven and glory in the highest because of his appearing as a sacrifice and as the Redeemer. But have you ever noticed Jesus' response? Not necessarily to the praise, but as he moves towards Jerusalem. Have you ever considered Palm Sunday in light of verse 41? And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. Visualize that for a moment. That as Jesus is coming on that donkey, and he passes through the crowd, you hear celebration, you see palm branches being thrown, you see all these wonderful things, cheering and joy, and in the background you see all these Pharisees crossing their arms in jealousy and envy. And as Jesus comes and he's being praised and recognized as the one prophesied by Zechariah, he comes closer to the city, and as he sees the city from a distance, he can't contain it. But tears begin to stream, and he begins to weep. It doesn't just say he cries, he weeps. Now, why does he weep? Verse 42 saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. He looks at the city of Jerusalem. And he weeps because of their failure to understand the opportunity that they had in this moment. The opportunity to recognize him and embrace him as the Messiah and know true peace. And because of their rejection of him as the Messiah in their lives, he prophesies in verse 43 of the destruction of Jerusalem as an act of judgment due to their rejection. But you know what I love? He says here, if you had known on this day the things that make for peace. What is he trying to say? Saying you rejected me. Because you rejected me, you ultimately rejected peace. And he weeps over that. And I, and I love how Jesus looks at a city and he weeps over a city. And I can't help but look at a verse like this, even on Palm Sunday, and say, Lord, I see your heart for cities. Yes, it's Jerusalem, but I see your heart for a group of people, a generation. And you're broken because they don't recognize that you are the source of peace that they are looking for and that they need. And I look out into the world today, and I realize the lack of peace, and the chaos, everything from the government officials to families that are stuck at home with each other. And I say, Lord, give me your heart to be broken and to say, Oh Lord, use me, use us, use your church to show that peace is possible. And peace is only possible when you embrace the Prince of Peace. That is what Palm Sunday is about. It's about how you can either accept Him or reject Him. You can crown him or you can crucify him. But if you choose to reject him, you choose to reject peace. And oh, how we need peace in our own hearts and all over this world. It will not happen until we embrace him 
And we join with those who say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Only then, when our governments and our ruling officials and everything below that will see Him as such, will we see order, will we see restoration, will we see what we long for truly in our hearts. And until then, it will not happen. He wept over it. And you look at the comparing scriptures that talk about his triumphal entry. You look at Matthew's version. You don't see Jesus weeping, but you see him after his triumphal entry coming into the temple and cleansing it. You know the story. He cleanses it. He flips things around and he rebukes everybody. But you know what I love about Jesus? That if you put these stories together, you recognize that before Jesus whipped in the temple, he wept over it. That before he came to rebuke, before he came to discipline, he shed tears. See, that's the heart of Jesus. Jesus does not take joy necessarily in judgment. He delights in giving mercy. This is the heart of Christ, that he looks at a broken people and he is broken over them. But because he is holy and just, he will have to implement and execute justice for those who reject him as the Prince of Peace. So much has been said this Sunday morning, but let's just recap quickly. What we have learned from this Palm Sunday is not just being reminded of what we are reading of right now, that Jesus entered into this world to be the Savior of the world. What we learned this Palm Sunday of 2020 is that plans, even good plans, can be interrupted quickly. We can know disruption in our lives within a few moments. So what is your life? What is your life? And if Jesus chooses not to return during this time and in our lifetime, and we have years ahead of us, that's up to the Lord. May we live, may we live with an understanding that we are not invincible, that we must be dependent, and we must continually keep him in mind as he could return at any second. May we not be regarded as a fool in the eyes of God, but may we be rich towards him. That is not to say we can't enjoy life. That is not to say we can't plan in this life. That is not to say that we can't do things in this life. But it is a mindset that must be continually wired of thinking of him of making investments in our hearts and in our actions towards eternal things and not things of this world merely. With all that said, we will see you this Friday, the Good Friday service, if the Lord permits. And between now and then, we will give instructions of how we will celebrate the Good Friday service together, even though we are separated. And we'll give more details about that soon. But for now, let's pray and seek the Lord. Father, we thank you for the reminder of who you are and of what this season is all about. But Lord, we are fully aware that this season is being celebrated in a very special time of history. And we are sitting in our homes realizing that we are going to most likely, unless a miracle comes between now and next week, Spend Easter in our homes. We are humbled in your presence, God. And we pray that the humility that we feel from this truth would continue with us as we plan ahead in our lives. Lord, help us 
imitate your son who said as long as I am in the world I am the light of the world may we say the same over our own lives and may we imitate you Jesus in the way you view a broken world help us Lord see you with those tears over looking Jerusalem as we look this generation in the eyes to see brokenness and to see that even our strongest words, even preaching truth, even sitting down with friends and family to tell them about the truth of who you are, may we do it out of a place of concern, not out of a place of superiority. God, we thank you and we trust in you and we dedicate this Easter week to you, believing that even though it's not what we wished it would be, we trust that it is what you want it to be because you are sovereign and we give you control over it. We praise you for sending your son. Help us live for him and live like him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. And see you this Friday.